The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's going splendidly, splendidly. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, and I'm extremely pleased to say that on this episode, I got to interview the creative team behind the new movie, Catch the Fair One, which is excellent. It is really good. I've been hearing really good things about it. I'm excited to check it out. It is honestly my favorite film that I've seen in 2022. It's a knockout. Setting the bar really high. <laughs> We're one month in. <laughs> well, you know, I've seen a lot of movies, though. In fact, I just that's watched true. a bunch of stuff from Sundance. And oh, that's, th- true. This, that's is, true. this is like, I've probably seen 20 movies so far in 2022. <laughs> that's, so fair. That, not, that's fair. Actually, <laughs> I, I wasn't factoring the Sundance thing in that. That, that actually makes a big difference. Uh, it, it does. Like if I if I had just seen like this and like, you know, Ernest goes to camp or something. Sure, <laughs> that would that, that would set the bar pretty low. But I've actually seen a lot this year. So <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Uh, anyway, Ben, who are those people that I had the pleasure of interviewing you interviewed if i'm not mistaken kaylee reese and joseph vladica that's right kaylee is the star and joseph is the director and uh kaylee and joseph also co-wrote the thing together and oh sweet it's one of those movies that i don't want to say anything i don't want to tell anyone anything about it it, it does involve human trafficking i'll just i'll say that much it involves human trafficking which is like mm. you know that we're in for for some darkness it's a good interview i really enjoyed talking with them the movie's fantastic and i really can't wait to see what they make next and that movie's actually coming out pretty soon right i think by the time that anyone hears this interview it will be out it's out on vod streaming platforms i think wherever you can do a vod streaming and uh yeah it's also in theaters limited run in theaters right now and IFC oh. Films is distributing, and yeah, it's uh, it's totally worth seeing. I will definitely check it out. How are you feeling these days about going to see movies in theaters? <sighs> At least in Los Angeles, I'm actually really pleased that the positivity rate has fallen down to like seven percent, which is yeah. uh, which is really good. I haven't been to a movie in a theater. I watched all the twenty something movies I saw so far this year streaming. Well, with the exception of Spider Man, I did go the one time, and that was enough to put me off going to the theater for a little while since it was just totally jam packed. But I've talked to a lot of other people now who are going, and they're going at maybe less popular show times and stuff, and yeah. they're having a good experience. So yeah, I haven't heard of anyone catching COVID at the theater. So. I haven't been to a movie since right before Omicron started, but I will say that literally last week I went to a concert. Oh, um, all right. And I went and saw Sparks, in fact. Nice. I've frequently talked about on the show, and we talked to Jake Polanski, who shot the Sparks documentary, The Sparks Brothers. Yeah, and that was interesting because they required proof of vaccination and a booster to even go into the venue, and everyone had to wear a mask, and they policed mask wearing. It was at Disney Concert Hall, so... Many months ago, I purchased uh, tickets to Hamilton, which then got canceled due to Omicron. And I, mm. I certainly don't blame them. I think that the tickets were when it was like 100,000 new cases a day in Los Angeles. So uh, yeah. but I will be back in the theater for the first time catching the installment uh, or the, the revival, the revival. Thank you. That's exactly what I was looking mm. for. The revival of Hamilton next month. And that will be the first time. Yeah, I'll have done something like that. with A crowd of people. 
Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully there won't be a new variant that'll be bedeviling us and we'll be able to go back to something like normal life. So uh, uh, everyone listening, get boosted, get vaccinated, please, so we can do this again. Yeah, and if you're the person who's been trolling us and telling us that we shouldn't tell people to get vaccinated, uh, uh, you know, sorry. <laughs> there we are. We're doing it again. You, could, you don't yeah, have to listen to us. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not a political podcast, but uh, yeah, if you're anti-science, I, I don't have a lot of room for you in my life. So anyway, moving on, we had a tremendous year last year for interviewing cinematographers. Uh, we interviewed three of the five Academy Award nominees. The nominations just came out. Ben, who refresh our, our listeners' memory. Who did we interview last year? Yeah, I was really excited when I saw, I mean, since we did our last episode, I think last Monday or something, they released the uh, the Oscar nominees. And of course, I'm like, uh, picture whatever, who cares, actor, who cares, whatever. Let's, I went right to the cinematographers. That's right. As, it, as it, everybody does. Forget the yeah. actors. Everyone yeah. goes to yeah, okay. Fuck all that stuff. <laughs> we're, we're we're here to talk about the DPs. That's right. So I scrolled down and I was so pleasantly surprised to see that we had interviewed, of course, Ari Wegner, DP of Power of the Dog, which was nominated for the most Oscars of all movies. Yeah. We had interviewed Greg Fraser, who shot Dune, and also the upcoming The Batman. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had talked to Daniel Lautzen, who shot Nightmare Alley. We have not spoken to, and of course, they are both on our radar deeply, not just for these movies, but for Amazing Careers. Mm. Bruno Del Bonnell, who shot The Tragedy. Tragedy of Macbeth. And of course, the the great Janusz Kaminski, who whenever yeah, we get on he, he here- did West Side Story. He did West Side Story. And if we're ever lucky enough to get him on here, all I'm going to want to talk about is Roger Corman. <laughs> Yes, he is part of that alumni of uh, quite a few yeah. people who've been on the show who cut their teeth at Corman back in the day. I can't wait to ask Janusz Kaminski about working for Roger Corman, but obviously he's <laughs> shot, I think, literally every Spielberg movie since Schindler's List. I, I guess you could ask him about Spielberg, but I mean, between Spielberg and Corman, <laughs> you know, most people are asking him about Spielberg. They're not asking him about Corman. So that, that, that well, would... I mean, to me, that's what I find fascinating. I mean, like when we had Wally Pfister on, it was the same thing where it's like, yeah, we could talk to him about making the Dark Knight trilogy, which are all masterpieces. Mm -hmm. But I was very interested to hear about Corman. Yeah. And you know what? Kudos to him for being so incredibly generous. We spoke to him three different times and we got to talk about all kinds of fun stuff. Not just necessarily like, you know, the big high profile, like, you know, onesie twosie. We got to talk about everything. It was great. We should do it again. We definitely should. That guy is an amazing storyteller. And good friends with Yanish, I understand. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, we've talked to a lot of people who were at Corman at that time, like mm. Carlos Gonzalez and Mike Mickens. Yeah, Faden uh, Papa Michael, I think, wasn't he there too? Faden, yes, yeah, Faden yeah. was was a Roger Corman person. All kinds of people. And, anyway, anyway, so, yeah. So the Oscars are an interesting thing, and our producer Alana Cody also thought we should mention that, like, the way they're doing, they're going back to doing regular old Oscars this year. It's just going to be Oscars. Mm. Last year was. Definitely the weird Oscars. Weird Oscars, so, for sure. So yeah. weird. <laughs> you know, the way they shot it and everything. So I guess they're just going, I believe, back to the Kodak Theater and doing it all. And they're not requiring vaccination proof, apparently. So any predictions, any gimmies, any anything? I know we're going to do a special where we, we talk to someone who really is a specialist about the Oscars. But what are you thinking? Uh, you're talking about Janelle Riley, who that's, we've had on for the, that's right. for the last few years. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, like overall predictions for the Oscars, it's kind of hard to say. When I look at this list of cinematographers, if I had to put my money down on one film winning, it would be Power of the Dog, mm. Ari Wegner. And the movie is beautiful and gorgeous and sweeping and the kind of movie we don't get to see. We don't make those kinds of movies as often anymore. And it was uh, just a breath of fresh air visually for Jane Campion, who is also kind of a, an Oscar darling kind of a director. So I would put my money down on that. 
or to me, the other one that, and, and we can get into this with Janelle, would be uh, Janusz Kaminski's Photography for West Side Story. I mean, all five of these movies are striking and gorgeous. And I'm not saying which ones are my favorite because I would never admit that out loud. But you there, know, there's like, a which, difference, though, between saying what's your favorite and what you think is going to, going to win. Because, you know, the Oscars, yeah. it's like a... You know, a lot of people like to vote for their friends. That's that's kind of how it is. It's self-congratulatory. And uh, people well, want to see their friends get get up on stage. Also, like a lot of times, you know, when someone's been around for a long time and hasn't uh, that's had, true. you know, which to me, that also leans Janusz, who I believe has been underappreciated by by the Academy over the years. It's hard for someone who's won two Academy Awards to be underappreciated. One for Schindler's List in 94 and one for Saving Private Ryan in 1998. It has been... It's been a long time since he's won an Oscar. Okay. And it hasn't been in the 2000s. It's true. But he has had four nominations in the 2000s in addition to that. So between awards and nominations, that's seven. I mean, the the guy's not overlooked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not quite like Roger Deakins, who had been nominated, I believe, eight times before he won for Blade Runner 2014. 13? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, there was a, that YouTube video that came out that was that said Roger Deakins is a loser. <laughs> and then it went through like all of his losses and that the oh Academy Awards. God. And then, then, of course, he won. Now, then he won twice. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. A- a- amazing. Well, and, and I do wonder, and actually, kind of speaking of that year, that year, which was what, 2017, we had spoken to um, Rachel Morrison, who was nominated for Mudbound and was officially the first woman ever nominated for Best Cinematography, I would say, to the shame of the entire film industry. But I'm not hearing as much press about how Ari is the second woman ever nominated for Best Cinematography. And if she won, she would most certainly be the first woman who ever won. And I feel like that kind of uh, momentum might get her the win. But I also feel like with Janusz Kaminski and West Side Story, that's the kind of movie that tends to win a lot of Oscars. Yes, I think it'd be really cool if Ari won, but you never know. It's always very uh, there. There's some surprises for sure, and some mistakes. You know, you never know what's gonna what's gonna happen well, at the Oscars. And not one of these movies, unsurprisingly, not one of the movies nominated for best cinematography isn't amazing to watch. All of them are just like a visual feast. I love you know the the two that we haven't interviewed yet, like the tragedy of Macbeth. Interesting aspect ratio they chose. Gorgeous kind of German expressionist black and white cinematography. Really stark really beautiful really like clean and composed like it's it's a master class in composition and then of course nightmare alley is just i i want to eat every frame of that movie that movie is gorgeous and luscious the way the camera moves like it's two masters daniel lauston and uh, guillermo del toro creating something visual and you know i've seen references and things that had similar elements but i've never seen a movie that looked like nightmare alley just beautiful throwback to noir cinematography but with a very modern spin uh you know all of these movies are deserving to be uh to be nominated and if any one of them won there's not one of them that if it won i would be like son of a bitch <laughs> yeah, you know, Ari wasn't on my wasn't on my radar at all, actually, until just like last year when I saw Zola and I thought Zola mm-hmm. was was phenomenal and also had a really, really great look. And so very interesting to see how uh, how it goes this year. Well, and anyone listening to this, if you're interested in them, it's just honestly been in the last couple of months that we've interviewed all three of these cinematographers. Don't know if we'll get Bruno or Janusz on the show between now and then, but uh, please go check those out if, if you get a chance. I, th- I think uh, all, all three of the conversations were, you know, enlightening and interesting. And I, I love I love hearing their stories of, you know, where they came from and how they got to to the work that they were doing there. Uh, agreed. And hey, let's get to the interview with Kaylee Reese and Joseph Vladica. Absolutely. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by Kaylee Reese and Joseph Vladica 
the creative team for the new movie Catch the Fair One. Joseph is the director and Kaylee is the star and co-writer of the movie. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure. The pleasure is mine. And I got to say, I I watched this movie last night and I had the distinct joy of being able to go into it completely blank. I didn't see a trailer. I didn't see any press notes. I didn't know anything about it going in. And the movie deals with heavy subjects like, uh, you know, kidnapping and human trafficking. And I got to tell you, I loved it. I love this movie more than uh, I can think any movie that deals with these subjects ever. And uh, I want to encourage everyone to everyone to see it. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the uh, creative process, how you guys uh, got together and started working on this story? Sure, sure. And thank you for that. That's such a beautiful compliment. So yeah, I mean, the creation, this collaboration, it's been an ongoing thing for, I think it's taken us five years to make this film now. And the initial like working on the script and the story was about a two year collaboration. I first met Kaylee back in 2017. I actually found her through the love of the sweet science of boxing, getting interested in boxing. Um, And I was immediately drawn to her, not just because she's a world champion boxer, but also because she's an activist and there's a lot of things that she speaks out on for her platform. And um, something about me felt like there's a movie that I'm interested in here and I want to meet up with her and talk to her and just just spend time with her. So at the time she was she was training for a, for a fight and uh, she I drove up to Providence and she was working out of this gym and I saw her kind of get in the gym and spar with these world champion dudes just sparring, sparring. And there was this inexplicable moment as a filmmaker where I was, I was like, okay, I, I, I don't know exactly what this movie is, but this is this is something, there's something here. Yeah, it just kept evolving until about two years later, 2019. That's when we shot the film. But I knew as a, as a the director and filmmaker that I wanted to bring her in creatively to help me with the story. I wanted to bring her perspective and just get, get her sense of stuff. And I really learned a lot. It was a very edu- educational experience for me as a filmmaker. And uh, tell me a little bit about delving into this this subject matter. It's a bleak movie, but at the same time, it's also riveting. And you have to, I think walk a pretty fine line to keeping that balance of your audience engaged and not turn turning out because of just how bleak the whole story is. And at no point did I ever, except for maybe, uh, you know, in the first couple of minutes, I think I was going to like have to co- close my eyes or turn away. This movie is powerful and engaging. Can you talk about striking that balance between uh, dark and not going too dark? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's a it's a very fine line to walk. You know, one thing that me and Kaylee always talked about was that it's got to it's got to be dark. Right. We really got to kind of go there. But, you know, be very intentional with what we show. You know what I mean? Um, And we wanted it to have a very as real and grounded feeling as possible, but also using the genre elements and stuff to pull the audience in and kind of take them on this cathartic ride. No, yeah, it's, you hit it right on the head. I mean, there were times where, you know, you'd question if it was too dark. And, you know, my mother was actually, because I was telling her about it, would say, and she's like the most gentle person you ever meet. She's like, it's almost, it's not dark enough because it was that fine line where you want to, you know, present the realism to it, but you don't want to, because it was entertainment, like you said, you don't want to have people turn away and like really shock them, but we wanted them to feel what it's like because this is a real issue this is not a made made up issue so it was that fine line that you had to almost question is she going too far is she not going far enough but how far would you go if that was you so it was a battle and I know sometimes I had to had to pull it through but um I know it was really good bouncing off one another and having those ideas and having that open platform to really explore different possibilities especially there's a version of it that could be very bad you know I mean like on the nose kind of 
And we, we kind of, in working with the other actors, we kind of sort of came to this common ground where there's like a quiet politeness. Yeah, to it's all more creepy. That's sort of uh, a little bit more just off-putting, you know? Like there's like a quiet silence to them. It, it makes it more scary and more grounded, I think. I think, I don't know. You, you pulled it off. No, no. There's a realism that comes through. It doesn't feel like your typical Hollywood, you know, brouhaha. It, it, you, you really have grounded this movie. And Kaylee, I want to I bring you into this a little bit here, too, because this is, I, I believe, your writing and performing debut in a, in a motion picture. And when people talk about movies being execution dependent, they're usually talking about all the people who come along to, to that story. Can that story, you know, actually carry through and all these other elements make that story? work or not you guys nailed it so well the execution of this is, is just mind-blowingly great tell me about your process of getting into the script and getting into everything working with joseph and then also having to you know you're in like every scene in this movie just about so can you talk about this at all like what, what this was like i mean it was just amazing to actually be involved in the creative process i don't know how to write a script but i know how to tell a story because just having that creative mind and just being a natural artist from birth, um, you know, boxing is an art in my mind and I'm just an artist in so many different levels and expressing myself is just something I've always done. So it was, um, you know, I was blessed to be able to work from the, the ground up my own character as well as all the other characters. And um, since it was my first time, you know, Joseph was really good at giving me the education of how it would be putting me in scenarios. He had me working with this other friend that was an actor. We'd practice goofy little things with this camera but it was one of those things where it's just like training for a fight I gotta practice I'm not gonna just dive in this without any experience it might not be the same way somebody else would have told the story from that character but I really got to build her from the ground up there was a lot of similarities and parallels with my real life that I was able to use but things and how I got taught you know years down the line especially when I got professionally taught when I was thrown in a boot camp but you think it's one thing and then when you're in it like this obvious things maybe that I pull you would think I pull from my real life but that was probably the last thing because it's more or less you have to be very very present every day every frame every word just to be in that creative space and having the trust and the support of the cast and crew was really can't really say easy but it was comfortable for me to be so vulnerable in such a a subject matter that was really close and you know her name is Kaylee she has a sister she was a boxer but building that character and really having trust in he trusted me to carry this entire film on my back and I trusted him just like I do with my coaches in boxing to see the things I don't see and really tell me what I what you need from me so it was an amazing experience I mean things like this don't happen and you know, again, I don't know how to write a script, but just to going back and forth and like, well, how do you think this person would say this? How would you say that? How would you, if he was in this, you know, that's really, really authentic. And it was really helpful for me to, to do what I did. Yeah. And, and I think one thing also that we, um, you know, in terms of building the character, what we always talked about was sort of like all the, the pain, the themes of pain and loss and regret that is going on, sort of the film's touching on. We wanted to put all of that on the shoulders of this character, you know, cause she doesn't talk that much. And also, you know, I got to give a shout out to right about I don't know, three weeks before we started shooting. Cause we, we did a lot of like working uh, to prepare her for acting the two of us and with a friend of mine and working on the scenes and so on and so forth as we were working on changing things as it was coming up. But also I threw her into a acting coach boot camp. There's this acting coach named Sheila Gray here in New York city. And she's an amazing legend. And I knew that I knew I had done up to a certain point, but I thought that there would be a benefit for someone else to come in and kind of 
put her dialer in even more, you know, um, and Sheila was fantastic. And so, so that was kind of the process. <laughs> Well, you answered it a little bit, Kaylee, but I wanted to ask you about the creation of the character, because in some ways it, it almost feels a little bit like an alter ego. Like, you know, you, you're playing a character who's a boxer, who is Cape Verdean and, and native, you know, uh, you've got all of this sort of life experience that's all kind of uh, built into this character. But if clearly, clearly it's not you. It's, it, it's a character. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, creating this new person? Yeah, I mean, it, she is it's a character, but we all have so many different sides of us and you know even i can speak a different language but if you're sad about something you're sad and that's holds the same frequency so just knowing that the the somber tone of a lot of 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 indigenous people and native american people just among us not even knowing why um that genetic genocide that gets passed down from generation to generation i've met people from different nations different tribes but it's just some common that common somber sadness that you can see and feel within us and it's one of those things that is starting to change and by telling stories like this storytelling is healing to us so creating that almost like alter ego you know i just it was almost like I just like I fight for all nations and put that on my back to physically fight. I know what it feels like to hear story after story day after day about another one going missing. Another one's found dead. I just know that. And I can feel so much of, of our people. And it's not just young girls, it's older women, young, young men, older men. It's just our people have been so targeted since the dawn of time of colonialism. And since the first settlers set foot on Turtle Island. So it, I didn't have to search too far. Uh, which is kind of sad to say, but it's so truthful. I didn't, all I have to do is look in the mirror. I am a target. So I know what that feels like. So it, I didn't have to look very far for that. Uh, Darren Aronofsky came on as the executive producer of this project. Can you talk a little bit about if that was uh, something very early on, something late? What kind of impact did having uh, Darren lend his name to this uh, make for the production? Me as a director and still kind of starting out, this is my, only my second film. <laughs> so to have, you know, a legendary, iconic director like Darren come come on board, it was a very wonderful feeling and a vote of confidence. What I had was when I was working with Kaylee, obviously, when, when I was preparing her, I would shoot stuff with her, which is a great way for indie filmmakers out there. If you're, if you're trying to make a film, if you can show stuff to people and be like, look, she can do it, you know. And I, I believe the story is, I'm not exactly sure, but I think as soon as Darren saw her, he was like, oh, okay, I get it. I'm in. And they were on board. And then in terms of, um, you know, he, he had notes for, for the script. He had very practical stuff. And then he was really very insightful for, for us in our post process when we were editing. You know, he gave really on-point notes that helped me think about certain things like, you know, like the visual grammar of how scenes are cut and all this stuff and like what you're really trying to do and how, how to just kind of hone it in a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, it was a great, uh, I'm very grateful that, that, that he was a part of the film and that he believed in the project. But again, I think, um, you know, Kaylee is what really, really brought him in. Brings everyone. It's a cheap person. The cheap person. Well, I actually, I want to give a shout out to uh, Nathan Halpern as well, too, because the music in this is, is really fantastic. And there's just an excellent score that kind of permeates in and out throughout the entire project. And he's got a little bit of heat behind him right now, too. I know he's got a couple of movies at Sundance and a really uh, you know long career as a, as a composer. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, Nathan got on board or how you guys uh, came to collaborate? Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. So Nathan, I mean, man, I could speak for hours on Nathan of, of how such a pure, amazing talent he is. He's a genius. And I absolutely loved, 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 loved working with him. 
I want him to score everything I ever do. And if I ever make more movies, <laughs> I was actually, you know, he had, he had scored a lot of colleagues. I had a lot of colleagues that had worked with him and my producer, Molly Asher produced this film, The Writer, Chloe Giles film, and he did the score for that. So she introduced me to him and he came and met me at a coffee shop and we just sat and kind of talked a little bit about the script and, um, and what he was thinking. And really like, for me, I, I, I try to, I think if I know someone's super talented, I don't want to tell them too much. I just want to kind of give them the ball and then and then see what they do, you know? Um, sure. And so, you know, we discussed it, not even from a musicality standpoint, really sonically too, in terms of, because we had a really amazing sound designer as well. And we kind of, the main thing I wanted to, to, to like touch on is how can the score and the sound design sort of work off of each other and sort of bleed into one thing? And it was great. It was a beautiful collaboration. He's a brilliant, brilliant mind. Um, looks at the script, you know, he looks at the emotionality of each scene, you know, it's it, like I said, it's not necessarily about references or anything like that. It's really just like, what are we feeling in each, each scene? And I thought he nailed it. I, I really, I really enjoyed the score. I think you're being humble. I think you're definitely going to get to make another movie. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you never know, man. You never know. I, I, I know it's a crazy fickle town and everything, but, but something tells me that, uh, Hey, look, uh, I was just reading right before this interview that slash film named, uh, catch the fair one, one of the most anticipated pieces of media to come out, you know, movies, television, anything to come out in February. And I think that's really high praise because there's a lot of stuff com- coming out right now and you're right on that list. So you guys are getting a lot of great uh, critical reviews. I, I saw that a really, really excellent review for the whole movie. And uh, I got to say, uh, I'm in agreement. This is this is really something special. I really think that you guys kind of caught lightning in a bottle here. And I really hope that it gets out into the world in a way that people see it. It's so difficult sometimes with uh, especially independent movies. I'm guessing you didn't have every single dollar you needed to make this movie just because uh, of the way of, of independent filmmaking, but it doesn't feel lacking in any way. It feels very polished and very raw and very real. And uh, yeah, I, I just can't uh, stop saying enough good stuff about it. I'm going to tell everyone I know to, to, to hurry out and see this. It's coming to theaters. Did I, did I hear? Is that, is this getting a theatrical release? Yes, yes. So the film is being released by IFC Films, which um, we're, I mean, I'm so grateful for. And um, so it will be released on Friday, February 11th, theatrically and online as well. Basically, anywhere you can buy films online. So it will be released at the same time and it's in limited theaters uh, on Friday. You know, it's a, we took a big swing kind of, you know, and it's kind of scary to put your art out there. So (laughs) hopefully... But it's nice that people are like, it, you yeah. know, um, but but as independent filmmakers, you know, I feel like we need that more than ever now. You know, I mean, we need bold films that take risks and everything, especially as movies are, I don't know, it feels like they're moving towards something else. And like, we just got to keep, you know, making our films. So we'll keep the, the good fight going. Uh, so Catch the Fair One Part Two. I'm, I'm kidding, of course. No. Everybody <laughs> wants a part two. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, anytime you have something that's successful and, and has a, a big following behind it, there is going to be, I'm sure, pressure actually to try to um, recreate what's already been done. I mean, this movie does not open itself up uh, easily to uh, to that, nor, you know, in my personal opinion, do I think that you need a sequel. Uh, but uh, if people are, are asking you about that, how do you how do you combat that? How do you say uh, or, you know, what's your feeling about uh, continuing this story? I mean, um, it's a story that needs to be told and it does 
just what we wanted it to do is bring awareness and ask those questions. I, I don't think it needs, if it, you know, I don't try to re reinvent the wheel. I think it has a bold statement and it kind of takes you in and rips you back out. I mean, to kind of continue something like an episode for episode type of a story to tell fam familiar stories each episode or something like that, that's something that would definitely be something, but I don't think it needs a sequel. Something that kind of continues just to, to bring awareness to this issue and to tell individual stories, something along those lines, because we did, definitely had a, a mission with this. Do you guys do social media at all? Where can people find you? Or is there an official site for Catch the Fair One in case they want to follow or, or learn more about uh, about the project? The Catch the Fair One movie yeah. um, through IFC. Yes, uh, it's through IFC site. And fe February 11th, it's going to be on streaming and in theaters. Correct, correct. February 11th, and streaming and on theaters. I'm very active on social media. Um, I have a Facebook fan page. It's K-O-Kaylee, K-A-L-I, Reese, R-E-I-S. Kind of keep that PG, PG-13. I have a lot of kids and um, elders that follow me. Instagram, I'm on a lot. K-O underscore N-D-N-B-X-R. Kind of the mix between a couple of things where I, you know, bring awareness to a lot of things that promote my fighting, the films. I'm just trying to keep people, you know, in the loop what's going on. And then Twitter, I'm a loose cannon. Um, kind of anything goes. So boxing Twitter is a whole vicious world. It's KO Reese 86. So you can kind of catch me on uh, like three different levels of social media. Nice. Joseph, any, anything for yourself? Uh, no, I, I've been on social media for, for a while just for my own mental mental health um. i would say your mental health is is way better because of that so <laughs> well kaylee joseph thank you so much for being on the show it was really a lot of fun and i'm gonna tell everyone to go see this movie i can't wait to see what you guys do next All thank right. you so much thank for you having so much me. so that was uh kaylee reese and joseph Vladika. It was really great having you guys on the show and we're going to put all the links to find you guys in the show notes. So if anyone wants to uh, go to camnoir.com, that's where they can find direct links to your guys' social. Sweet. Can't wait to see it. Can't wait to see what they do next. All right. So Ben, it is bill paying time. I'm going to tell all our listeners here a little bit about Aperture. I've mentioned it before, but they've got a new light coming out. It's the largest, brightest light that they make. It is called the 1200D. And uh, for any of you playing at home, 1200D is uh, the same amount of watts of power like a 1200 watt HMI or a 1.2 HMI would use. But this just absolutely blasts out a huge amount of light, far more than a uh, an HMI 1200 and doesn't weigh very much. It doesn't take any time to power up. There's no ballast to get up to speed. It's, you know, it does have a ballast, but it can be powered by batteries. There's all kinds of really clever stuff. And it is finally about to ship. By the time you hear this, Hot Rod cameras will probably be receiving our shipments. And I think next week we can actually then start sending them out to customers. So oh, I know we've, we've got a bunch of people who've uh, pre-ordered, but you have not pre-ordered one of these lights. We'll put a link in the show notes and you can find it and head over to Hot Rod cameras and you can order this incredible industry leading light it is it's really really powerful it's really impressive if you wanted a 1200 watt led and had been just you know waiting to pick one up uh the, the aperture is definitely worth taking a look at it's got all kinds of advanced features and connections and things and it's definitely going to be i think a favorite because heretofore the largest light they had is a 600d but now they're doubling that which means a full stop extra i can only imagine really how much light this is putting out the 600 is plenty bright for a lot of people but if you're doing big shoots big areas uh you need to bounce things through frames you got to take a look at this light it's it's pretty incredible 
I, I know I keep talking to you about this, but I, I really do wonder, like, how far away are we from just the end of HMI lights? Because, like, you know, LED lights aren't going to, to my knowledge, they don't lose color temperature. They're, they don't have a color temperature shift over time. They don't require as heavy of a ballast. They're smaller. They're lighter. Like, wh- how long till you go on, a, on an electric truck and literally everything is LED, do you think? I'm not saying that on the high end of production, that's going to happen right away. But on the low end of production, that's what is the reality now. There are many sort of sprinter vans and one ton trucks that are basically LEDs now. And uh, I think as you move outside of like L.A., New York, Atlanta, you run into that more and more. People who are uh, more moderate sized or corporate production people. I'm not saying that the HMIs are going in the chipper, but they're not getting used nearly as much. And just replacing a bulb on an HMI is an expensive, expensive process. So really, yeah, it's happening. And the other thing that I'm, I'm talking to people about is the death of generators. You don't need as much power, as much amperage for the amount of lights and the wattage you're getting out. Bigger generators are getting used less and less smaller generators are getting used more and then even some people with just giant batteries are now they're just showing up on set and using giant batteries and that's a that's yeah i mean i I can imagine that you would need distro for that stuff but it's so much easier when there's a battery at the source and also just think about how much less uh, fossil fuel you're burning in your shooting day if you don't have to have a, a you know a crawford generator just you know burning gasoline or whatever all day long yeah, it's interesting. The generators aren't going away completely yet, just as, uh, but maybe the size of them is getting a bit smaller. They don't need quite as much. But of course, the high end Hollywood stuff, uh, th- there's no substitute for the infrastructure that exists right now and the Jenny operators and everything else. But uh, I will tell you that if you stare into the crystal ball five years from now, it looks like a very different place. And now, short ends. We have come to our patent pending short end segment where we talk about our pet obsessions for the week. Ilya, what's your pet obsession this week? DJI, maker of primarily drones, but also some professional equipment for the motion picture industry, introduced a camera a few months ago, actually two cameras. They call it the Ronin 4D 6K and 8K. Oh, I can't wait to hear you you talk about this. I've been kind of following this a little bit. It's now, I think, thrice delayed. It's been delayed quite a bit, but uh, they're about to start shipping the 6K version. But they lowered the price 400 bucks and dropped the notice that ProRes RAW had been uh, eliminated from the camera. They basically said, hey, you know, we're not going to ship the camera right now with ProRes RAW. We are going to lower the price. And voila, here it goes. No word exactly on when the 8K version, which I think is the one that most people out there are waiting for because the price difference isn't too much between them. I think it's about three or $4,000, but when you're talking about something that's already like seven grand, the difference between seven grand and 11 grand, I think that there's quite a few people who want the the, the top of the line. They don't want necessarily the, the entry level. I had talked to some people who were involved with the early prototypes and sort of launch films, and the feedback I got was not great. It wasn't horrible, but it wasn't great. The, the, the consensus really was not quite ready for prime time. And they knew it when they were when they had to, you know, they have their deadlines of when they have to market and everything that the stuff that they were using for it wasn't entirely finished. So they were they were doing the best that they could. I am cautious. Look, I'm financially motivated that this camera does well. My my company sells their products. I'm sure if someone was going to buy it, I'd be very happy if they went and ordered it from us versus other people. But at the same time, I, I can't give a wholehearted endorsement because the feedback that I got was eh, version two is probably going to be a, a, a better product when they come out, when they really refine this a bit more. 
it's going to be more interesting. What I think, though, is very interesting about the camera is the marketing aspect of it, because they're really trying to say that this is a Hollywood tool, that Hollywood big cinematographers should be using this because it has LiDAR and it's got, you know, hand controls that allow you to uh, use a bunch of different functions. And it's got a gimbal stabilization built into it and autofocus and all of this other stuff. But really, the people who I think need those functions more than any with anybody else are probably event shooters. They, they I mean, the people who reality, are going out, reality television, exactly where they're like running and gunning. That's exactly right. Reality event people who like don't get a second take. I could see like the entire, you know, the team of the amazing race diving into this wholeheartedly and like, boom, now here's this incredible tool for them because yeah. they are literally running and chasing after, you know, those contestants on that show all the time. And this might actually be something that really changes their life for them in the sort of like professional cinema world, which they their marketing is is totally geared towards. And they got, you know, Eric Messerschmidt. They got a bunch of people. They got uh, Rodney Charters. A bunch of people been on our show to go and, and work with them to promote it. And in theory, it's all really cool. But at the same time, it also looks to me like there are so many different ways that something could go wrong. And because mm. it is essentially untested, I'm going to say that the jury's out and that people should be cautious and wait uh, a little bit. Let someone, especially if you've got a show that you can't afford to have uh, an issue or a problem on, there's so many radical changes that what they are trying to introduce here, if something doesn't work the way that that you're hoping it is, I would say it's irresponsible not just to to use this camera, but really anything that's untested but this one to me because they are throwing the kitchen sink in there with all these different functions you're going to want to let some other people mess around with this before you put your name your reputation on the line on a new piece of gear and uh, well i mean that that just goes with all technology it is a version one of a thing and when you think about like what was the first ipad like what was the first iphone like what was the first name that camera how much better was the going back a, a few years the xl2 how much better was that than the xl1 how much better is every future iteration of a piece of technology and dji is known in particular for having very frequent iterations yeah look they're, they're releasing two iterations essentially at launch there there's the 6k which i think ships by the time anyone hears this i think tomorrow and then the 8K, which they actually don't have, they just says, oh, reserve now on their website. We don't have any information about when that's that's really going to launch. We were told originally that these things were going to be in stores. We were going to be in our hands by December 28th. That clearly yeah. didn't happen. It's now February 15th. So there's been a, uh, a bit of a, a stretch. And it doesn't surprise me. The thing seems complicated. And I will tell you that they pitch it as, oh, you can put a PL mount adapter on here and you can work with PL lenses. But if you see any of the pictures of it actually rigged that way with a matte box, there's like about an eight inch gap between the bottom of the mm. camera where your rods would be. Maybe it's six inches, but regardless. And then where your where your lens sits, which means all traditional accessories are out the window. Not I mean, I don't think that you can put clamp ons. There's a, li a weight limitation on that or there might be a lock or something. But yeah, the stabilization function is not going to work when you put big lenses on it and you can't put any of your, you know, typical sorts of like matte boxes and that sort of thing because just your rods are, you know, a half mile away is is, is what I would say so. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'd seen a Corridor Digital had done a video about that camera a few months ago. And I remember there were things about it like the LiDAR based follow focus that I was like, finally, like that looks like the smartest thing ever. But looking at them operating that camera, the, the picture quality that came out of it, and obviously that was a prototype they were working with, the picture quality was solid. But the camera itself looks a little kludgy to me in that it's trying to be an all-in-one camera, gimbal, steady cam, every, everything to everyone camera. And 
that's hard to do, you know? I, I think they deserve some credit, though, too, because I do think that this sort of thing is the future. I didn't think it was going to be implemented this way, and I do think you'll see more people coming out with stuff like this, but I think it actually will be implemented differently, and we'll see, but it's uh, not going to flood the market. Traditional cameras are not going to disappear overnight, and I would say that it's a little bit of a wait and see right now to see how the, the Ronin... 4Ds really, uh, really perform and, and what sort of impact they have. Reality television, event shooters, I could see them jumping onto this really quickly, but traditional cinema, we'll, we'll see. So Ben, what's your uh, short end this week? My short end is, uh, and I think we mentioned it in passing on a previous episode, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about it. And it is the mini series on Hulu called Pam and Tommy about Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee. And uh, if you don't know what this is all about, uh, you know. <laughs> you were born after 1990. So, <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, I, the whole scandal, I think, came out in the, it was like late 90s, like 96, 97. At yeah, least. I, oh, well, I just um, didn't think that any, any young kids are going to really be uh, uh, up on it. But yes, you, you you probably were born after a certain era. But yes, yeah, so yeah. it, was, it was a big deal. It was a big deal back in the mid 90s. It, yeah. it was a big deal. And uh, firstly, I want to just shout out because we have had the cinematographer of the sh- uh, TV series on our show. I believe it's Paula Hadobro. Yeah, Paula Hadobro. Yeah. She shot the most awesome episode of Barry. And after we saw that episode, we were like, we got to get her on the show because it was just one of the most brilliant visual pieces of work I've seen, period, in in years. And Pam and Tommy is, I find it interesting from a few standpoints, uh, one slightly personal. The first movie I ever worked on, Pamela Anderson was one of the leads. And it was before she was a big star. Uh, it was a straight-to-video movie. I'm not necessarily recommending it. It was called Raw Justice. Uh, it starred Dave, David Keith and Robert Hayes and her, and I didn't know who she was. Like I, I, somebody said, "Oh, she's she's on Home Improvement." I didn't, you know, I, I never watched Home Improvement. Still, have never watched Home Improvement. She was the Tool Time Girl. Mm. I didn't know anything about her. She was perfectly nice. I was in the makeup department. She would sometimes eat lunch with us. It, you know, we weren't like sharing each other's dream journals. We were just, you know, eating lunch and working on a movie. But uh, she was perfectly nice. It's the first time in my life that I've seen a biopic of someone who I actually worked with. Mm. And to make another makeup related shout out to Jason Collins and Autonomous Effects, I know Jason and I have worked with him and they did prosthetics. This this show has a lot of prosthetics. Now, so he had to make the actors look like they're uh, the people that they're playing and the likeness that they got for Pamela Anderson, the, the actor who's playing Pamela Anderson. She doesn't not look like Pamela Anderson, but I don't know that I would have chosen her out of a bunch of actors to be like, oh, yeah, she'll she'll be the lookalike. And they with very subtle prosthetics have there are shots where I'm like, yeah, that looks like the Pamela who I like sat around on set with right down to like this character has nude scenes and it's like her upper torso is a prosthetic and you would never know. It's pretty impressive. But the show itself is brilliant. It looks great. Like originally I thought it was going to be like super obnoxiously tabloidy. And I guess it's a tabloidy story because it's about, you know, a shall we say personal tape that was stolen from Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee and then was released on the Internet and in certain ways kind of created the Internet that we all have today. So there's sensational aspects to it. But like it kind of follows Seth Rogen as the guy who stole that tape who is a disgruntled carpenter working for Tommy Lee. And Tommy Lee kind of comes across as a mega douchebag. And in a way, I feel like Pamela comes across as like the most sympathetic character on the show. But it's it's a show that goes to kind of, uh, shall we say, expressionistic places in, in, at moments. Um, yes. And kudos to Paula for really like nailing that, too. It's like, you know, the show kind of 
goes between reality and you're absolutely right. Like, you know, surreal perspective and oh man, it's, it's fun. It's really fun the way, the way they put it all together. Yeah. And I think she did a beautiful job. Like it just looks great. I love the way the camera moves in this show. I love, you know, we're, we're now you and I are old enough that like they're recreating a world from our early adulthood. So it's interesting to see like LA from the mid nineties recreated, uh, which that, sh- shock, shockingly was a long time ago. It tells us how old we are. You know, Hey, I got to give for, a shout out sure. to, to Paula too, though, because since we had her on the show, her career has taken, you know, it, it's, it's just gone to that next level. She, I mean, shout out to us. It was clearly because we had her on the really show. It was, it, we're, we're totally responsible here, but she did episodes of Dave Fargo. She shot that movie Coda, which is getting all kinds of love right now. Oh, she did yeah. the TV series physical, which I loved. And now Pam and Tommy. So it's like, damn, damn. She, she is, uh, she's busy and, uh, cranking out all kinds of great stuff. And, uh, uh, let me tell you, if you haven't seen Pam and Tommy and don't know anything about it, uh, yeah, you know, give it a try, try an episode or two, see, see if you like it. And Nick Offerman it's, steals. He's, a, I, I was literally about to say <laughs> Nick Offerman with a giant mullet and a mustache and a fanny pack, you know, yeah. just steals my it, heart. It, it's a fun show. It doesn't take itself too seriously, which I think is exactly what you want out of a show like this. Like there, there could be nothing worse than, uh, this show just being like really, you know, dry and serious and everything else. No, it's, it's played with a wink and a nod and a tongue and a cheek it's like it's it's fun but also i mean to me the other trap of a show like that is to be super vapid and absolutely and, it could go the other way like, yeah and and just schlocky and hacky about it and i feel like it the show knows exactly what it is these characters know exactly who they are they got top flight actors to play every every character and and i do think it's actually in, in i mean in as much as it is a true story it's interesting to sort of see and I can attest to this because I was around during this time. It's like the birth of the way the internet is. I feel like that's really what what it's kind of angling towards because, you know, this is not really a spoiler. The guy steals their sex tape and puts it on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> in a in a dial up time. Yeah. The, the, the first time somebody did that and it would and yeah. it was and it was a big story. So and now it's yeah. like Tuesday, another stolen sex tape. So, well, yeah, <laughs> but also I, uh, I don't know if the show gets into it, but of course it was revealed there. You know, there was a there was a true Hollywood story and a whole bunch of people have written about this. But there's no way that that tape could have still existed out there without actually participation going back to Pam and Tommy. There was like royalties that that got paid to them, I guess, to, to drop all. Their I'm sure they get into that as we we're, we're rolling into, I think, the last two episodes of it. So yeah, I can't wait. It'll be fun. Anyway, so that kind of does it for our show. Maybe we should try and get Paula back on the show. And have we her should 100% get her back and, and have her talk about this because uh, I'm sure she's got one or two stories from the set of this. I, I'm sure I du- shot during COVID. So it's a it's a oh, whole boy. thing. Yeah. So who should we thank? Hey, let's thank uh, editor Ben Katz, who uh, is slicing and dicing and vegematicking and, you know, cutting our, our words together here so we don't sound completely terrible. So we don't sound like the dopes that we are. Let's also thank our amazing friend and collaborator, Kay's Alatracci, who created every scrap of music that you've heard on the show. Uh, you can find his work at www.musicbykays.com. Yeah, and let's thank Alana Cody, Alana Cody, who uh, put together this interview and many more that are that are coming up Ooh, here in, in, the, got a lot. in the next few weeks. All right, so we will see you next week. Hey, thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.